Well, thank you again for the wonderful privilege of being part of your church family today. Every time I preach, I am preaching, first of all, to myself, but I can promise you that is especially true uh, tonight. I want to begin by reminding you of one of the most famous events in the history of the nation of Israel, one we're familiar with. It's the one related to their escape from Egypt. As you know, when the Egyptians were pursuing the Israelites from behind and the Red Sea was before them, God miraculously parted that sea so that his people could cross to safety. And then God destroyed the Egyptians by drowning them in that same sea. What, what a story, what an event. In fact, this event, this event has become a metaphor that many people, saved and unsaved alike, use to describe some difficult situation in life. People who don't even know really what it means may say something like this, wow, boy, I felt like I was standing at the Red Sea. And as well, they might use this event to describe being delivered from some difficult situation. They might say it, it was just like the parting of the Red Sea. Well, we as God's people do understand what all that means. But as famous as the Red Sea event is and as important as that was in Israel's history, long after Israel had actually stood before that Red Sea, which seemed to them an impossible situation, there was another time, years later, when all the people living in Judah, the southern kingdom, and their king, Jehoshaphat, were facing a situation that likely made them feel like they were, once again, as a nation, standing at the Red Sea with no solution. We find this event that we're going to look at tonight in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, I realize that's not a familiar section of Scripture to many, so just to help you a little bit, it's right after 2 Chronicles chapter 19. So if you find that one, you're very close, chapter 20. This is the account when Judah, the southern kingdom, faced invasion by the hostile nations that lived around them. Just a little review, you'll remember that 10 of the tribes under the leader of Jeroboam rejected the Davidic dynasty and formed a kingdom to the north, we call it the northern kingdom, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. Two of the 12 tribes remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty and they were in the south, so the southern kingdom, that's called Judah. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south, this is something that happened in the history of that southern kingdom, Judah. Before we look at this event though, I, I do need to bring you up to date at least on a little bit of the history as far as their king goes, King Jehoshaphat. So a few comments about him. First of all, Jehoshaphat was the son of King Asa. Now, none of this is going to be on the exam, so just, just listen. Asa was a good king. 
relative to some others. And, you know, we have to say that about some of the kings, a good king relative to some others. But even the good kings had some glaring blind spots in their thinking and their behavior. But overall, we would say Asa was a, a decent king. You'll find the record of Asa's reign back in chapters 14 through 16 of 2 Chronicles. Here's a, here's a general statement about him. You can see it in chapter 14, verse 2, if you want to look at that with me. It just says very briefly, 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord, Yahweh, his God. Interestingly, though, chapter 15 tells us that some of the people who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel were starting to defect to the southern kingdom of Judah because they saw God's blessing on that southern kingdom. So people were moving in from the north. But there was a little hiccup in Asa's reign. You find that in chapter 16. The king of that northern kingdom of Israel didn't like it that some of his people were leaving and defecting to Judah. So he began to fortify some cities, sort of like fortifying the border. I don't know, maybe building a wall or something to stop that defection. Asa saw that from the southern side. He saw that as an aggressive step. He was worried about what that would lead to. He decided to make an agreement with another nation called Aram. Aram had an alliance with the northern nation of Israel. So Asa appealed to Aram to end that alliance and instead put pressure on Israel to stop those fortifications on the border. And it worked. The king of Israel, the northern king, when he heard about this, did stop the work. But problem is, Asa should not have tried to be friends with the king of Aram. That was an enemy. He should have been ready to conquer them, not be friends with them. So a seer, S-E-E-R, a seer named Hanani came to Asa and confronted him about that. That's chapter 16, verse 7. Because you, Asa, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. You could have had them and you were making friends with them. And then he said this in verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Well, Asa resented being told that, and so he had Hanani thrown in prison for telling him that. Later on, we find that Asa was stricken with a severe disease, and he died so his story doesn't end that well, but nevertheless, he was relatively a good king. Chapter 17, his son Jehoshaphat succeeded him. Jehoshaphat, guess what? Was a relatively good king. Chapter 17, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he, verse 4, sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control. In chapter 18, however, we unfortunately find a little hiccup in Jehoshaphat's story. He aligned himself with Ahab, the king of Israel. 
someone who absolutely really did not love the Lord at all, Ahab. And that led to Ahab's request that Jehoshaphat help him go up against Ramoth Gilead. Now, to Jehoshaphat's credit, when Ahab asked him to now partner with Ahab and go up against this other nation, to Jehoshaphat's credit, he he thought to himself, we really need to check with the Lord about this. I don't know if this is a good idea. We need to seek a prophet's counsel on this. So he told Ahab that. Ahab reluctantly agreed. And Ahab did mention a prophet. Well, we can go see this one guy. His name is Micaiah. Ahab didn't like Micaiah. And here's why. Chapter 18, verse 7. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Well, Jehoshaphat insisted, no, we need to talk to him. Micaiah, Micaiah. And Micaiah eventually told them that this whole venture was going to fail. Well, Ahab didn't like that prophecy, so he insisted on this military campaign anyway, and he deceived Jehoshaphat into going ahead and going into battle with him. A point came, though, when Jehoshaphat did cry out to God for help, and God graciously gave that help to Jehoshaphat. Didn't turn out so well for Ahab. An enemy soldier randomly, probably read that story, it's interesting, randomly shot an arrow in the air. And guess where it came down? It came down in a joint in Ahab's armor that led to Ahab's death. Chapter 19. I'm just bringing us up to date here. A man named Jehu confronted Jehoshaphat about all this, about ever even considering aligning himself with King Ahab. And so this was a very unfortunate debacle in Jehoshaphat's reign, but fortunately he, he learned from it and he responded properly. Look at verse nine, chapter 19, verse 4. So Jehoshaphat, just reading part of it here, went out again among the people and he brought them back to the Lord. He realized what he'd done was wrong and that sets the stage for our focus tonight, chapter 20. Now we can divide this account it's a story, a narrative story. We'll divide this into six scenes. And here's scene one. It's something that happened, by the way. This is happening about six or seven years before Jehoshaphat's death. So that's where we are in Jehoshaphat's history. Here's scene one. And these are just marking our progress through this narrative text. Scene one, the unexpected threat. The unexpected threat. Verse one. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now this was very unexpected, this invasion by the combined forces of three groups. The Moabites and the Ammonites were, were neighbors up toward the north. The Meunites were an Arabic tribe headquartered in Edom that was toward the southwest. The point is, this coalition of armies planned to invade Judah with the clear purpose of driving out the people of God and taking over. 
And it was some of Jehoshaphat's own people that came and brought him this shocking news. Verse 2, then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. Now note that the invading force is called a great multitude here. That's a way of indicating that this combined army was considerably larger than Judah's army. And this large advancing army was using this little used route. It's mentioning where they came from there. It's around the south end of the Dead Sea. The point is that's an area where Judah was less defended. So these tribes invading from that direction, they had heard about what was in Jerusalem, in the temple, all the riches that were there. So they knew that that was a, something they wanted. They knew the people of Judah were thriving, and so they were now coming in great hordes to kill the people, to destroy, to plunder everything. That's the unexpected threat. Scene two, the singular hope. The singular hope, verse three. Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now, that's not surprising. I mean, he knew the size of this invading army. He knew his own army. He knew they were outnumbered. But something else was also true of Jehoshaphat. He clearly knew where to seek help. Verse 3 goes on, And he turned his attention to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And that term, seek, doesn't mean something just nonchalant. It means the idea of fixing your heart on something. He, he was seriously seeking the Lord's help in a very settled sort of way in his heart. So the point is that ultimately Jehoshaphat was intently putting his trust in the Lord in this situation. And he called on the people to fast. That was just a way for the people to express their own humility before the Lord and their dependency on God. It was a way to emphasize the sincerity of their, their plea for his help. And that's what all the people did. They pled to God for help, verse 4. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. They all knew how serious this threat was. They all knew that the enemy was enormous. They knew that as far as they were concerned at the human level, their case was hopeless. So they prayed and their king, Jehoshaphat, led them in that as they gathered all together in the temple. And just to break this down a little bit, this great prayer, we'll flesh this out a little bit more here, this singular hope, this great prayer falls into five sections, I think it is. Here's the first section of their prayer. They acknowledged God's sovereign power. They acknowledged God's sovereign power, verse 6. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. They're confessing God's omnipotence here. They're confessing that he rules over all things. He exercises his sovereign rule, it says, in power and might. So this was essentially an expression of their confidence in God's ability to help. They acknowledged God's ability to help. By the way, 
this is a little bit of a side point, but I, I love the statement that David made, you know, right before he killed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 46. I love what he says there. He said, this day the Lord is going to deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Here's the part that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Well, Jehoshaphat believed that. He believed indeed that there was a God in Israel, the God in the heavens who ruled over all the kingdoms of the nations, it says. And notice that the name Lord that Jehoshaphat uses here as he, as he acknowledges God's power is Yahweh. So in calling Yahweh, the God of our fathers, he's giving a reason why God should protect his people in this present crisis. Because God had proved that power, he had proved that might in generations past, and he was the same God in Jehoshaphat's day as he is in ours. They acknowledge God's sovereign power. Here's another section of this prayer. Second, they acknowledge their past blessings. This is how you learn to pray, by the way. They acknowledge their past blessings, which in their case meant the gift of the, of the land they were in, the temple that God had promised to Abraham and Moses and David, Solomon. Look at verse 7. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They've lived in it and have built you a sanctuary for your name. He's saying, Yahweh, you've given this land of Canaan to your people. And we built a sanctuary to your name. So it only seemed right to Jehoshaphat that God would take care of the nation so that they would continue to enjoy that land and worship him in that temple. In other words, Jehoshaphat trusted that God was not going to forsake his people now. He blessed them already in the past. He trusted God would not abandon them now. Third, they acknowledge what God had already promised. This is all still under that second scene there, the singular hope. They acknowledge what God had already promised. In this case, they actually recite here a, a bit of a summary of the promises associated with the Davidic covenant, which is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7. The Davidic covenant. And that covenant included God's promise. This is very important to Jehoshaphat. There was a promise God made to hear the prayers that were offered up to God from the temple, in the temple. Into verse 8 and then verse 9, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. It's a plea that he makes, should evil come upon us. We don't have time to do it, but if you did go look at what Solomon prayed at the temple's dedication back in chapter 8, you would find basically the same thing. In chapter 7, God promises to answer that kind of prayer from his people. So Jehoshaphat is rehearsing that, and he's essentially pleading with God by saying, God, here's what I'm saying. I'm just asking you to do what you promised to do. They acknowledged what God had already promised. Fourth, they acknowledged their terrible circumstances. 
They're not like we are sometimes. How's it going? Fine. Fine. No, they acknowledge their terrible circumstances. Verse 10, now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and, and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. This means that Jehoshaphat believed that what these invaders were doing were wrong. I mean, God had showed those nations wonderful grace in the past by protecting them when Israel began to take over the land that was promised to them. And yet, even though God showed them grace by protecting them, here they were invading God's people, the Israelites. So Jehoshaphat was reasoning through all this, and it only meant one thing to him, that God would show even greater grace to his own people. But they did acknowledge their terrible circumstances. Fifth, they acknowledged their need for help. I love this verse. O our God, verse 12, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. This next part I've prayed many times. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a great expression of weakness. What a great expression of their total inability to change anything about their circumstances. What a great expression of their confidence in God. They didn't know how his help would come. They didn't know when. But it didn't matter. They looked to him anyway. Because they knew he was the only one who could accomplish anything in a situation like they were facing. Verse 13, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Why they have all their children there? Because that, that was a way of just expressing the fact that they sensed their, the level of the danger they were in. We're about to all be wiped out. And it stirred them up to even more fervent praying to God because God was their singular source of hope. There was nowhere else to turn. The unexpected threat, the singular hope expressed in that great prayer. Here's scene number three, the encouraging promise. The encouraging promise. Starting at verse 14, we find that the Lord sent an answer to Jehoshaphat from really an unexpected source. It was through a Levite named Jehaziel. Jehaziel was actually a descendant, by the way, of Asaph, the great Levitical musician, Asaph. Jehaziel is a descendant of him. Jehaziel is there, just there. 14, verse 14, then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. Verse 15, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. That was certainly a welcome reminder of the Lord's care to them. 
It's also a reminder of his power, his ability to carry out his will. So there was no reason for them to fear. There was no reason for them to be disheartened. God would be faithful, as he always is, to fight the battles that are his to fight. And this is a reminder of what's true in every circumstance. The answer ends up being trusting in the Lord's will, trusting that he's working out his will in his providential dealings in the world. Now, the specific way God is going to work is not something we can necessarily know, and that was true for these Israelites. I mean, this is what they were told, don't fear, don't be dismayed, the battle's the Lord's. They weren't told what God was going to specifically do here. Basically, they're only told that God's at work. And what God would do would become evident the next day, verse 16. Tomorrow, go down against them, and you will find them at the end of the valley, in front of the wilderness, you know, go down here, turn left, two rights, in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. Just so you'll know, this wilderness was alongside the, the Dead Sea. The west side of the Dead Sea, it was a high tableland on the west side of the Dead Sea. It was essentially a wasteland, not good for anything. They're told to go there, so Israel went. They go to meet this enemy on this high wasteland, but not to fight. Verse 17, they're told this, and you don't need to fight. Not in this battle. Just station yourselves. Stand. See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. And here it is again. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Notice the repetition of that. Don't be afraid. And that is such an important point for us. God begins helping them first by calming their hearts, calming their fears so that they were able without fear then to face whatever would come. How often God does this with us. He gives his people deliverance defined this way, by quieting them. Even in the worst situations, we can have calm hearts, no matter what it is. Scene number four, the proper response. The proper response. How they respond? They worshiped. That's the proper response, verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Verse 19, they stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Verse 20, they rose early in the morning. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. That's the proper response, giving God the praise he deserves. But notice the timing of this worship. Their response of worship is still before seeing what God was going to do. I mean, if you're reading ahead, you know the story. They didn't. 
I'm submitting that this is where the spiritual battle is really fought. It's in whether or not we genuinely trust God in difficult times and whether or not we are going to give him, in those moments of difficulty, the praise that he does deserve. Regardless of the trial, regardless of the overwhelming nature of the difficulty, they worshiped. It's the right thing to do. Scene number five, the shocking discovery. These are like news headlines. The shocking discovery. This is incredible. Verse 22. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were, I love the way the New American Standard says it, they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Can you imagine this scene going on? Just picture this. Here are the Israelites. They're marching to meet this horde in battle. At least that's what the enemy thinks. Supposedly to battle. And they're coming. They can hear them coming, singing and praising God. I mean, they'd been in some battles before, but they'd never seen an approach like this. I mean, this is a very unique way of doing battle. I mean, normally the armies would rush in in a totally different way, not, not marching and singing hymns, so new style of fighting or something. And evidently, this is all we can conclude, evidently, this greatly confused them. So we don't know exactly how this happened, but something like this, some confusion, led to then mistrust amongst them, which manifested itself in the invading armies all destroying one another. So group one and two are looking at one another, and they're concluding group three must have something going on with the enemy here. And so they got together and killed group three, but then group one and two looked at one another and said, we're still not convinced. We think it was you guys. And so they kill one another. They're all dead. We don't know the particulars. The bottom line is we know it was God who stirred up all that confusion amongst them. So what did God's people have to do? Just look at it. <laughs> what happened? Verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, valuable things which they took for themselves, more than they could carry, and they were three days there taking the spoil because there was so much. This lets us know that these armies, they had, they had come to stay. They were going to drive the Israelites out, take possession of the land for themselves. They brought everything with them. But they make, the people of God make this shocking discovery, find them all dead, along with this amazing amount of wealth, which was now theirs. That brings us to the last scene. Number six, the appropriate conclusion. The appropriate conclusion, verse 26. Then on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, 
for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they have named that place the Valley of Baraka until today. This was a battle not far from the battlefield, excuse me, a valley not far from the battlefield. And so it received this name, the Valley of Baraka, it means the Valley of Blessing. And then after that, they head home. They joyfully returned to Jerusalem, went up to the temple to render further thanks to the Lord for this wondrous thing that's happened. Verse 27, every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. Many scholars who write upon about this section in 2 Chronicles have concluded that they believe that the song that the Israelites sang as they marched back to Jerusalem was very possibly Psalm 47. And it does make sense. I'll read you some excerpts from 40, Psalm 47. This could be what they were singing. Psalm 47, verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. Verse 6, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. What a song. <clears throat> the word definitely spread. Made the news. Emails were being sent left and right about what had happened. Verse 29, and the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. That's the narrative divided into those six scenes. But here are some reminders that we should get from all of this, okay? That was sermon number one. Here's sermon number two. Some reminders that we should glean from this great account. And there are 40 of them here. No, it's really only eight. But see, if I told you eight, you were thinking, whew, that's a lot. But now that I said 40, you're going, oh, eight. That's not bad. We can persevere through this a little more. Reminder number one. It's the reminder, and these are obvious, the reminder of the priority of prayer. In all of our difficulties, dangers, fears, burdens, anxieties, needs, perplexities, whether they're public trials or private, our first response as God's people should be to seek Him in prayer. And yet, sadly, for many Christians, prayer is sort of the last resort or no resort at all. We forget the wonderful promise of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the wonderful thing about those two verses is nothing is said there about the answer from God. The peace doesn't come because of the answer. The peace comes 
from giving our burden to the Lord in prayer. So just remember this story, the situation, Jehoshaphat and his people, they were helpless. So let me ask you that. Have you ever been in a situation that seemed like you were helpless? Are you in one of those right now when you don't know what to do? And you are just overwhelmed with the reality that you are powerless to change anything. It could be about someone you love, a family member, another circumstance, finances, an illness. Well, then pray. In every situation, we ought to be known as those who are constantly seeking the Lord in prayer. And something helpful that my my wife teaches ladies is that you learn to pray by choosing good examples of prayer, like this one, examples in scripture, or in books of, uh, of the prayers of those who have lived before us. You, you study their content, their humility, their boldness, their passion. I'm doing that presently. I'm reading through a book called Piercing Heaven, Prayer of the Puritans. And you find the different forms because all the prayers are, are good in Scripture. They're all good, but they take different forms. But regardless of their form, I like the point that D.A. Carson rightly makes. It's this, that people who have learned how to pray, you can definitely conclude this, they all take praying seriously. They all pursue biblical goals in their prayers, and they all have a wonderful mix of humility before God and at the same time boldness with God. Certainly, a passage like this ought to be a reminder to us of the priority of prayer. Reminder number two. It's the reminder of the encouragement we find in remembering. A reminder of the encouragement that we find in remembering. When Jehoshaphat began seeking God, he, he starts mentioning God's past acts. And that's a powerful encouragement. Remembering what God has already done for us. I mean, what's he done for us? What have we found about him in the past? We have found him so many times to be good. We have found him to be faithful to us. We have found him to be patient. We have found him to be gracious to us. So if you're in a time of difficulty, it's, it's good, it's right to come to him and, and say things like this, that God, you're the one that has brought me to where I am. You are, you're the one that saved me from my sin. You plucked me out of the world, the miry clay of my sin. You gave me new life. And every step along the way, you've been there. You've never abandoned me. And I know it wasn't because I was worthy of all of that. I have been totally unworthy all along the way of anything that you have done for me. And here I am again now, still unworthy. But I come to you again. You've never abandoned me. And frankly, you've had good reasons all along the way to abandon me. And you have good reasons now. But you never have. And so I come to you. I have nowhere else to look. You are the true source of all the help I need. I mean, essentially, that's what Jehoshaphat did. 
He asked God's help by first recalling the past, and I think it's right to imitate him. Third reminder, it's the reminder of the freedom we have to be honest with God. I mean, these people clearly articulated their terrible situation, their condition, so we should do that. I mean, it's not like God doesn't already know. Prayer's not a divine 911 call, you know, to inform him. I think we find that there's tremendous power in being totally transparent with God, truthful with God about our circumstances, truthful about what our fears are, truthful about our greatest burdens, truthful about our anxieties, truthful about how we feel. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes, When we have no strength and neither know what to do, we come and just lay the case down at God's feet and we say, there it is. Our eyes are upon you. Virgin writes, perhaps you think that's not praying. I will tell you it is the most powerful form of prayer. Just to set your case before God. Just to lay bare all your sorrow and all your needs and then say, Lord, there it is. So go, he writes. Lay bare your sorrow before God. Just go and show your soul. Tell God what it is that burdens and distresses you. God's not moved by eloquence of words, but he is swift to answer the true eloquence of real distress. Another way to say all that, God does love for us to honestly state the difficulty we were in. And I think there's a practical reason for us. Because the more we are specific, the more we are honest, the more prone we are then to watch to see what he does do. Because no matter how he works in our situation, we will readily remember our former condition. And then we more readily recognize that he's brought us through something once again, another day. Be honest with God. Number four, it's the reminder of the benefit in reciting God's promises. It's a reminder of the benefit of reciting God's promises. Jehoshaphat did that, the Davidic promise. You see, that's not only allowed in prayer. I'm here to say that it's helpful. It's helpful to say, Lord, something like this, Lord, here's what you have promised. And I believe that you do what you say you'll do. Now, granted... Today, we do not receive new promises from God, okay? He's already given us all we need, all the promises we need in his word, the scriptures. So what I'm saying is learn the promises of God in his word and repeat them to the Lord, the very things he has promised, and that strengthens you. Lord, you have promised never to forsake me or leave me. Lord, you've promised not to give me more than I can bear and that you would help me endure no matter what it is. You've promised that, Lord. Lord, you've promised to use this situation for good and to even use it to make me more like Christ. There's benefit in reciting God's promises in prayer. Reminder number five. 
It's a reminder of the true help that we need. The true help that we need. See, don't, don't take from this something like this. Don't, don't go home going, okay, I get it. I get what that pastor was saying. That neighbor that's causing me problems, I'm going to pray what Jehoshaphat prayed. And then I'm going to start looking in the backyard to see if he's dead. <laughs> or that boss that's so unfair, those coworkers, or those people at school that bully me. I, I'm going to pray this same prayer. I like this sermon. No, that's not the true help that you need for God to kill your enemies. I mean, that was his choice to do it. He doesn't always do that. So what's the new help? What's the help we, we really need, the true help? What we need most in times of difficulty, whether we know it or not, is not necessarily to be saved from the trouble, but is to be saved from the fear of the trouble. It's to have our hearts, what I said earlier, quieted. It's to have our hearts calmed, even if the circumstances don't change. I like to use the word angst. It's a good old word, angst. Our hearts can be so full of angst. Our hearts can be severely troubled. That's the way Jesus said it to his disciples in the upper room. Don't let your heart be troubled, so full of angst. So when we seek the Lord, that's what we need the most is for him to just calm our hearts. I, I love it when he removes the difficulty, but it's wonderful when he removes the burden of the difficulty. Even if the situation does stay the same or even if the situation worsens. And whenever I say things like that, my mind is always taken back to Genesis 41, verse 51. It's something in the, in the life of Joseph. You know, he married eventually, and he had children. And in Genesis 41, verse 51, it says that he named his firstborn Manasseh. Why? Well, the verse tells you. <laughs> because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Manasseh means something like one who causes to forget. So it's like, come here, one who causes you know, to forget. That was his name. <laughs> what does he mean there? Made me forget all the trouble of my father's household. What's he talking about? He's talking about what happened in his life when his brothers sold him in the bondage and lied to his father, you know, that he'd been killed. And then Joseph was mistreated in Egypt and thrown into prison eventually. I mean, it was hard times, all because of what his brothers did. A lot of trouble. So think about what Joseph says. He, God made me forget all, the, all my trouble and all my father's household. The very fact that he's saying that means he still remembered all the trouble of what his brothers did to him, or else he wouldn't be choosing to name his son this. So the important point is, Joseph was saying, God had removed the burden of my heart of what had happened to me. The trial itself is nothing as one writer put it, the trial is nothing if the sting to our soul is removed. Another man said it this way, if your heart is not troubled, then the rest of the trouble is not as bad. This is a reminder of the true help we need. God quieted their hearts before they ever knew what was going to happen.
Number six, a reminder of our obligation to worship. A reminder of our obligation to worship. That was their right response. In our prayer about whatever this difficulty or trial is that we're going through, we're to also remember to give the Lord the praise and honor and adoration he deserves. And that worship ends up strengthening us as well. But learn something from this narrative about the timing of the worship. Before the answer to prayer comes, before deliverance comes, before God does whatever he does, praise him then. That's what the Israelites of old did. Praise him for what is coming. Adore him for what he's going to do, whatever it is. It's sweet praise to God, as Spurgeon puts it here. I'll quote him again. Spurgeon writes, Though still the fig tree does not blossom, and still the cattle die in the stall, and still the sheep perish from the folds, though there should be to you no income to meet your need, and you should be brought almost to necessity's door, bankruptcy in other words, still bless the Lord whose mighty providence cannot fail and shall not fail. I love this insight. Your song, song of praise, your song while you're still in distress will be sweet music to the ear of God. Reminder of our obligation to worship. Number seven, any narrative like this is a reminder of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in how he causes all things to work. And he does that. He causes all things to work according to his eternal perfect will. And that's what he did in Jehoshaphat's circumstances. He worked in those circumstances in exactly the way that was best in those circumstances for God's own kingdom purposes. And no man, no nation could do anything to thwart God's sovereign will. That's still true. To put it more practically for us, God is sovereign then over how he answers our prayers. And his answers, therefore, include the following. Yes, that's one. No, that's an answer. Not now. And fourth, different and therefore better than what you ask. So like I said, don't expect God to kill all your enemies. But do expect him to answer according to his sovereign will. That's what he does. And the timing's in his hand. Don't forget that. His timing is wise, it's good, it's perfect, which then brings us full circle. All that means we must trust him. It's a reminder of the sovereignty of God. And the last reminder for us tonight. In the broadest sense, it's... No matter what I read, I'm reminded of our need for Christ. I said this this morning, I can say it again tonight, if you've never trusted Christ, then the benefit of these reminders, the benefit of the lessons, then really don't apply to you. You are facing your anxieties and your burdens and your fears on your own. 
you must fight your own battles. You must bear your own trials. And I just can't think of anything worse than that in this world, the earthly life. There is something worse. It's just not the earthly life. It's coming to the, the great last day, you know, the, the judgment throne of God and giving answer to him for our sins and then bearing the punishment for those sins ourselves. So all of this says to, to not belong to the Lord is, is a terrible way to live now. It's a horrible condition to be in now, but it's the absolute most terrible condition to be in then when you die. So tonight, my prayer is for each of us who are followers of Christ to realize that the God we serve, his character has not changed. His will is still perfect. All that he does is right and good and just. And he is faithful, and we can trust him. And my prayer for you, if you cannot claim to belong to him, is that you would open your heart to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, so that you can know the peace that only he can give, peace with God, first of all, and then to know the peace that overwhelms your soul, even in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great drama that happened so long ago, and yet you've recorded it in your word and your word profits us. So this passage, like all passage, is good for teaching us. It's good for rebuking us in the areas that we think wrongly and live wrongly. It's good for correcting us, for taking us and straightening us up to help us stand straight again. And it's profitable for then training us to help us to build new habits of righteousness, right thinking, and right living. So thank you for this narrative. I do pray we would take all these reminders to heart, and I pray for those who are here tonight that may be fighting some very difficult battles, some that others know about, but there are private battles here as well. Private fears and anxieties and burdens. And you know their hearts. You know all our hearts. So, Lord, I pray that you would do exactly in our hearts what you have done so many times and that you would remove the angst, remove the fear, remove the anxiety, remove the burden of our trouble. And we will be careful to give you the praise that you deserve. In our Savior's name, amen.